0: John chapter 8, 21 through 30. Two Sundays ago, we looked at Jesus' testimony about how He is basically the divine light bearer of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, who has come into the world to shine spiritual light on men, to shine truth on men, to shine the gospel on men and lead them Out of darkness. The religious leaders, the Jews who were there as Jesus preached this in the temple courts, they responded by challenging the legitimacy of Jesus' testimony and teaching. And they basically denied his gracious invitation to follow him, to become his disciples, and to experience the light of life, which is eternal life. Or salvation. This next section that we're going to be looking at, this next passage, I've divided it into three sections. In section 1, Jesus declares the consequence for rejecting Him. In section 2, He describes the path or pathway to eternal death. What it looks like when a person is on the path to eternal death. He describes that. And then in section 3, Jesus discloses a terrifying realization. So He declares the consequence for rejecting Him. He describes the path to eternal death. And He discloses a terrifying realization. That is this text in a nutshell. Let's begin with our first section. Section 1, the consequence for rejecting Jesus. We see this in verse 21. Are you there? Chapter 8, verse 21. Jesus says this, So He said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek Me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus came down from heaven to secure everything we need for eternal life. That was his mission. He steps out of glory in heaven. He comes down. He becomes a man for the express purpose of securing everything his people need for eternal life, for salvation. And through his perfect obedience, perfect living... Perfect obedience to God's law, He provides the righteousness we need. You see, unless you become righteous, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot experience eternal life. You have to have righteousness to be able to do that. Through His bloody sacrifice and death on the cross, He provides the atonement we need which is basically the removal of our sins and forgiveness. So we have to have a righteousness and we have to be cleansed and forgiven of our sins. We have to have our sins actually removed and we have to have the righteousness of Christ applied to us in order to inherit eternal life. Those are things that He came to do, to secure for us. And through His resurrection... Jesus provides power for sanctification. That would be Christian living. You know, we live out the Christian life. We have to have power to do that. We can't do that in our own strength. Through His resurrection, He provides sanctification. That's the ability to live the Christian life, the ability to be made like Him. And there are other things that are tied to His resurrection. Another thing... ...that He provides through His own resurrection is proof that those who are in Him... ...that their own physical bodies will one day be raised in glory. So these are some of the things that Jesus came to secure for His people. The righteousness, the cleansing and forgiveness... ...and the power to actually live out the Christian life after the person is converted... ...to be made like Him which also simultaneously serves as proof to our own future resurrection and glory. When we reject Jesus as Lord and Savior, we reject everything He did for us. We reject everything that He secured for our salvation, for eternal life. And if we die in this mode of rejecting him, we actually die in our sins. This is what he says here in this text. We die in our sins, and the consequence for dying in your sin is being barred from entering what he told, uh, where he told the Jews that he was actually going to. He was talking about heaven. So if you reject him and you stay in that mode until you die physically... You actually die in your sins because they have not been dealt with, they have not been removed, you don't have any righteousness or anything, and then you will not receive access to or the inheritance of heaven. And so, what Jesus is doing here in verse 21 is he's warning everyone there in the temple court, everyone there who's listening to him. He knows that people are rejecting him, and he's giving them a warning. I'm going to be going away soon. He's referring to his ascension. And he says, you will seek me. And this is after the fact and when it's too late, basically. And he says, because of your rejection, you will die in your sin and you will not be able to go to where I am going. So he's warning them. Instead of receiving eternal life, they were going to receive eternal death. This is what happens when a person rejects Jesus, rejects his work on their behalf, and dies in their sins. Theologians tend to describe eternal death as eternal separation from God. Have you ever heard that said that when a person goes to hell, that's the part that's really terrible, is that they're separated from God? This is what Some ministers preach, and it's partly true, but not holistically true. It isn't necessarily separation from God when a person goes to hell, because how can anyone be separated from God when he is omnipresent, all present, everywhere at the same time? So when you say that if you go to hell, you'd be separated from God, you're essentially saying that's a place where God does not exist. Well, how can a God who exists in all places at all times not be there? You see how the logic breaks down? Plus, to be separated from God, and this is just, this is again logic, to be separated from God for eternity is no great threat to impenitent people. To be separated from God is no threat to the atheist. He hates God and doesn't ever care to be in the presence of God. So if you are trying to minister to someone who doesn't believe in God and who rejects Jesus Christ and you say, you realize you're going to spend your whole eternity apart from Him, he says or she says, hallelujah. For the first time ever, they use the word hallelujah because they don't care to be in the presence of God. They're spending their entire life running from His presence. So there's no threat if hell equates to separation from God. The ungodly want nothing more than to be separated from God. So their problem will not be separation from God. God is omnipresent. It's impossible not to be in His presence. Even when you go into your house and you turn the lights off and you hide in the corner, He's there. You cannot escape his presence. He sees and hears and records everything. So the problem with those who, who go to hell, who die in their sins and, and inherit eternal death, the problem isn't separation from God. That's an impossibility. It is actually separation from something, but not God himself, but from what he provides while we are living. The separation is from what he provides while we are living. Three things I have for you. Number one, separation from God's common grace. God's common grace is everywhere and is being expressed in our world in innumerable ways, breath in our lungs. The fact that you are breathing and taking in oxygen, that you are alive. Expression of God's common grace for the believer, for the unbeliever. Sunlight coming through those windows, shining on your face when you leave. an Expression of God's common grace. Money in your pocket, an income to be able to pay your bills, to be able to buy food. Whether you're a believer or not, expression of God's common grace. Everything that you have, everything that you own, whether you're in Christ or not, is an expression of God's common grace. Everything comes to us through His common grace. Or some guys don't like the phrase common grace. They would say providence, and I'm okay with that. Food on your table. All of these things are examples of God's common grace. Everyone enjoys the benefits that flow from God's common grace. Unbelievers and believers alike. Scripture says in Matthew 5:45, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. One of the greatest passages that illustrates God's common grace: how there is a form of his grace that goes out to everyone, the just and the unjust. The evil and the good. And the good would be those who are in Christ, not doing a bunch of great things. But eternal death means separation from God's common grace in the place of hell. Hell is, it's not like the earth. Although I would say there are certain sections at times that become very hellish. Where there is warfare and bloodshed and those things. But hell is... Is nothing at all like the earth and nothing at all like the worst places on earth. There is no beauty in hell. And believe it or not, you can actually find beauty just about anywhere, even in the midst of great struggle. There are no flowers in hell. There is no greenery in hell. There are no rolling hills. In hell, there are no streams in hell. There are no beaches. There are no puffy clouds. There are no beautiful sunsets. There is no art. There is no literature. There is no love. Hell is a place of torment and despair. Hell is hellish. People today scoff at hell and deny the gospel because they are comfortable. They are enjoying God's common grace, which causes them to downgrade and to diminish the threat of hell. But in reality, they have no idea for what awaits them. No idea. The story of the comfy, rich man who died and went down into Hades in Luke 16 should cause us to immediately repent and trust in Christ. In the midst of his great thirst and terrible misery, he cried out for a drink but his request was denied. He then asked if Abraham, who he had envisioned there, would go and warn his brothers about their own doom because they were on the same path to eternal death as he was on. And he says, go warn my brothers. But that request was denied. Even Water for our thirst is an expression of God's common grace. And there is no water for our thirst in Hades and then in hell, which comes later. There is none of that in hell. There is no expression of God's common grace. Nothing good flowing forth from God in hell. Number two. It's not just separation from God's common grace. It's separation from God's mercy. Separation from God's mercy. The human race in its entirety has rebelled against God and continues to do so. The reason why all people are not instantly consumed by God's wrath is because He has chosen to be merciful. If God withheld His mercy for half a second here, this world would be destroyed. We are living in a dispensation, a period of grace, a period of mercy. But when a person rejects Jesus and dies in their sins, the mercy ends. It's cut off. Because God is omnipresent, He will be present in hell, and there will be no mercy flowing from Him. Not as there is today, right here in our own lives. And this is what, to me, this is what makes hell truly terrifying. The terror of hell is is not in the fire and the flames, as some would have you believe. It is not in the devil and the demons. It is in that God will be there in the fullness of His divine wrath he will be there to exercise his justice and execute his punishment rightful punishment and just punishment on the wicked i remember years ago going to a thingy that one of the large churches in town had set up over at the vintage fair mall and it was this big tent and the whole thing was it was called the 99 or something like that and and when you, you went into this tent and it, you walked through these corridors and stuff and it had all these images of hell. And then you get into this big room where they've got this dude dressed up in a devil costume with a pitchfork going around and poking at people. And you've got demons in the back going, ah, people. And, and, you know, and all of this weird stuff. And it was crazy. And by the time you get through the end of it, then they've got all these tables and you can go sit there and fill out a card. I need Jesus because I don't want to go to a place like this. I'm like, it's just a stinking tent. And and here's the deal. It's a scare tactic that's used to goad people into making a decision for Christ, signing a card, and then, then they land at this church that put this thing on. Here's the problem with it. They left out the main component in the scare tactic. And that's the fact that God will be there in all of his wrath. The devil... Do we not realize that hell is is a place of punishment for the devil? He's not running hell. Hell is not his domain. He is the prince of the power of the air. His domain is this darkened earth. Hell is a place that is consigned for his own torment. So he's not down there running hell like a prison warden. Jesus is the prison warden over hell. And that should terrify you. The whole tent thing was a joke. It it wasn't frightening because it wasn't realistic. God is what makes heaven glorious and God is what makes hell terrifying. It says in Hebrews 10.31, and this is talking about going off into hell, the person that does that, it says this, It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And those in hell will know God not as a merciful God, not as a a kind and loving God, not as a Messiah. They will know Him as a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 29. What's amazing is it's a fire that comes forth from his justice and judgment that actually never fully consumes the person. It just burns them enough to keep them in torment forever and ever and ever. The late great R.C. Sproul wrote, Hell is an eternity before the righteous, ever-burning wrath of God, a suffering torment from which there is no escape And no relief. So in hell, you have separation from God's common grace. You have separation from His mercy. And third, you have separation from God's light. Hell is described in the Gospel of Matthew as outer darkness. Chapter 8, verse 12, 22, 13, and 25, 30. All three of those texts in Matthew describe hell as outer darkness. In 1 Peter 2.17 and Jude 1.13, hell is described as utter darkness. You have outer darkness in Matthew, you have utter darkness in Jude and 1 Peter. Now it is also described as a place of fire Matthew 5.22, Matthew 18.9, Mark 9.43. It is described as a place of fire. It is described as a lake of fire, Revelation 20.14-15. It is described as a lake that burns with fire and brimstone, Revelation 21.8. So the question that I have is, how can there be darkness in hell? How can it be outer darkness? How can it be utter darkness? How can it be dark at all if there is fire in hell? Fire does what? It emits light. And I suspect that the darkness of hell has to do with separation from God's light, which shines forth from God's Word. I think that's the reference. It's not necessarily a physical darkness. It's another form of darkness which shines forth from God's Word, from the Bible, from Scripture, from His revelation. What does the Bible call God's Word? A light for our paths. Psalm 119, 105. It says that God's Word illuminates our minds. Psalm 119, verse 130 and 2 Corinthians 4, 6. It says that God's Word enlightens the eyes of our hearts with saving truth. Ephesians 1, But in hell, God's light is absent because God's Word is absent. The absence of God's light shining forth from His Word results in outer darkness, a thick spiritual darkness that never ends. And this means that there is no possibility of salvation in hell because the resource has been cut off. Believe it or not, there are people out there that will tell you, they're universalists, they'll tell you that hell isn't forever and that God is going to one day take the people that are in hell and save them and take them out. This is an impossibility with the absence of light that shines forth from His revelatory truth. How does faith come? By the hearing of what? If this is gone, there's no possibility of salvation. There's no possibility of illumination. There's no possibility of enlightenment. And this is cut off. There are no Bibles in hell. And this ensures that those who have died in their sins and who are experiencing eternal death will remain in that mode for eternity. There is no redemption to those who go to hell. They are stuck in hell for eternity they literally stay there forever and you know what Jesus said he said it right there in our verse they will seek him what does that mean it means they will seek him for relief it's not like they're going to get down there and start calling out for him to save them that's not at all what they do they still hate him they're still his enemies but they will seek him for relief I need a drink. I need shelter from this blazing heat. I need need air conditioning. But they will not find him. And it's not because he's not there. He is. But it's because they cannot find him. He will not reveal himself to them in that way. Not for relief. Not for anything else. That's the first section. The first section. Section Section 2 deals with the path or pathway to eternal death. and We're looking at 22 through 25 here, and I see five warning signs. This is how you know if you are on the path to eternal death, if you are uh, pointed in the direction of experiencing the things that I've already taught you. Five warning signs here. Number one, these are the things that Jesus illustrates. Number one, self-righteousness. Verse 22, self-righteousness. It says this, so the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come? The religious leaders who are standing there listening to Jesus warn them, literally responded by mocking him they basically said he is right if he intends to kill himself if he kills himself he will go down into Hades which is not a place that we can go to because we are righteous can you believe that this is what they said Well, what does he mean that we cannot go to where he is going? Well, I know a surefire way where we will not be able to follow him to where he's going. If he just offs himself, then he'll go to Hades. And we certainly can't go there because we've got it all together. We're self-righteous. This is what they said to him. It's mind-blowing that they're still breathing. And he's seeking to keep preaching the gospel to them. Jewish tradition taught that suicide was an automatic ticket to hell this is their belief in that day you kill yourself you go straight to hell and this is why they said that to him well if you is he going to kill himself because then we know that we're not going to be able to go to be where he is because we're self-righteous we're not going to that place and i wonder if this is where catholicism gets it from because this is what they teach you off yourself you're not you're not going to heaven I don't even want to get into that discussion. And the reality is these religious leaders would never kill themselves. Never. Nor would they ever admit to being sinful and unrighteous. Those are things that they would never do. I'd never, I, I'm not going to kill myself. I'm not. And you know what? I don't, I don't need Jesus. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much perfect. I obey all the laws and do everything I'm supposed to do and God is thoroughly pleased with me. This is their attitude. This is why they're saying what they're saying to Him here. They believe they were on the path to eternal life because of their religiosity, because of their good deeds. But Jesus kept warning them. And this isn't the first time He warned them. He said something similar previously. Where I am going, you cannot come. You're not going to heaven. You're not going to get eternal life. You're, on the, you're not on the path to eternal life. You're on the path to eternal death. The truth is, if we believe that our religiosity, our good deeds, are making us righteous and qualified for eternal life, we are wrong. If we think like these religious leaders, these Pharisees did, we are dead wrong. No amount of good deeds that we perform, no matter Uh, no amount of kindness or or good things or giving or church attendance or any of those things, none of that is enough. Luther once said, the most damnable and pernicious heresy that has ever plagued the mind of man is the idea that he can make himself good enough to live with an all-holy God. And yet this is the basis of all false religion, isn't it? And it's even the basis of some forms of false Christianity where it's all about earning and earning that right standing with God through your behavior. Better keep it up. Better keep doing the right thing. Years ago, my, my own father, whom I don't speak to very often, and that's pretty much his doing, not mine, but I did contact him one time to tell him that I had preached my very first sermon. And he congratulated me and was very happy about that. And then he proceeded to ask a bunch of questions about the church that I had preached at and the church that I was a part of. And 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 he asked weird questions like, do they have a band and do they have instruments and stuff on stage? I said, of course. He goes, see, that's not a scriptural church, son. That's not scriptural. And we got into this huge debate, and you know, about music and all this stuff and it was just weird and and I just told him I said so so are you telling me that that according to your understanding it's the reason why you're going to go to heaven and get eternal life is because you're eliminating things like you know musical instruments I mean heaven forbid I'm going to hell because we've got a guitar up here is this is it is it a process of, of removal that gets you there like you take these things out of your life and you keep them out of your life and that's pleasing to God and giving you the righteousness you need. I mean, wh- where are you going with this? I said, "Are you do you believe you're going to go to heaven?" He goes, "Well, only after I've done as much as I can do then it's up to God." Of course I invited him to our church. Well, you need to get out of wherever you're at if that's what they're teaching you. Oh no, you you don't understand. I don't understand. Okay, that's fine. I don't understand. I'm an idiot. I know it. <laughs> the idea of earning. The idea of righteousness. The, the process of elimination. Well, if I just take Mormons, if I just take caffeine out of my life, God's going to be happy with me. Yeah, but I'm not going to be happy with me. <laughs> the only righteousness God accepts is Christ's righteousness. And if we are not clothed in His righteousness by faith, we are on the path to eternal death. The only righteousness that counts is Christ's righteousness because it is the only righteousness that is perfect. Because only He obeyed God's law perfectly as a human being. Self-righteousness is one of the reasons why these men who attacked Jesus right here with this terrible, blasphemous slander, it's one of the reasons why they were on the path to eternal death. Because they thought that they had earned a right standing with God through their behavior and through all the behavior modification, through doing all the great stuff, they thought they were squared away and good to go. And Jesus tells them, where I'm going, you cannot come. Wouldn't you think that would cause someone to stop and consider? Or maybe to continue arguing, because that's what they did. That's the first, self-righteousness. The second is darkness. Verse 23a, He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. This is his reply to them after they try to slam him and say that he's considering suicide and that's how we won't go to where he's going because we'll never go to that place. He responds to him by saying, you know what, you're from below. I'm from above. Now heaven is, is pictured scripturally as a place of light. And scripturally the world is pictured as a place of darkness and sin. Jesus is from heaven, the place of pure light. The religious leaders were from the world, the place of darkness and sin. When Jesus entered the world, He came as the divine light bearer and shined light upon people and offered to give them the light of life, right? Verse 12, the same chapter. But people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That was back in John three nineteen. And this is what the religious leaders were doing here. They were rejecting Jesus because they loved the darkness, because they loved their sin, thus proving they were what? From below. They didn't have a heaven perspective or a heavenly mindset or a heavenly focus. They were rejecting him, the prince, the king of Heaven. They loved their sin. They loved the darkness, thus proving they were from the realm of darkness, the place of darkness. If we choose darkness over Christ, we prove to be from below and show that we are on the path to eternal death. In other words, if we choose sin over the Savior, this illustrates that we are all about the darkness rather than about the light. And we are, therefore, on the path to eternal death. We must repent. We must turn from darkness, from sin, and come to the light. Come to Christ by grace through faith. If we do this, we will receive the light of life, eternal life. But these men were not interested in that. Jesus continues... Number three, worldliness. Worldliness, verse 23b, Jesus continues to say to them, You are of this world, I am not of this world. As I said earlier, just a moment ago, the world is a dark place because of sin. It is filled with all manner of wickedness, hatred, violence, murder, sexual perversion and every imaginable form of it, blasphemy, profanity, false religion, idolatry, greed, selfishness, corruption, etc., etc. There's no shortage of sin in this darkened world. And to be of this world, which is what He said of them, you are of this world, to be of this world is to be like this world. To be worldly is to think like the world and act like the world. It is to follow the patterns and behaviors of this world the religious leaders exhibited worldliness in a number of ways pride idolatry really they worship themselves more than anyone else or anything else hatred there's bitter hatred here is there not when you say to jesus the things that they said to him what are you just going to off yourself yeah then we won't go to where you're going that's hatred that's slander that's blasphemy They exhibited worldliness in all sorts of ways pride, idolatry, hatred, blasphemy, self righteousness. The greatest evidence for their worldliness is in their unwillingness to turn from the world, repent, and trust in Christ alone. Their rejection of Christ is the greatest expression of their worldliness. When someone rejects Christ, they are choosing the world over Christ. I want the world. I want darkness. The world is so utterly contemptuous to God that He declared this, a friend of the world becomes my enemy. James 4.4 You've heard it before, right? To be friends with the world is to be enmity with God. If You're a friend of the world. You're an enemy of God. If we belong to the world if we are thinking and acting like it if we are following its patterns and behaviors we are enemies of God and we are on the path to eternal death we must turn from the world repent right that's what it means and come to Christ by grace through faith as believers we are to be in the world not of the world I think some of the ladies have been studying this subject in their women's Bible study. There's actually a difference between being in the world and of the world. Massive difference between those two things. To be in the world is to live according to the truth and live for God's glory. It is to live a missional life by sharing the gospel with others. It's basically to exist and live in the world, but not to be like it. To be like Christ in this fallen, dark world. To be of the world is is dramatically different. To be of the world is to be like its child. And what do children do? They copy and mimic the behavior of the parent. To be of the world is to be like the world's child and copy its behavior and follow its instructions and patterns. It is to live like an unregenerate, unsaved, unbelieving person. If we have been born again or born of God, we should be becoming like God. Holy, righteous, pure in our lifestyle, loving and merciful. Not perfect. God is perfect. We don't become like that, that level in this life. But one day we will be perfected. If you're a Christian, live in it. Don't be of it. It's interesting that the subject that we're looking at with our reading correlates perfectly, perfectly with this stuff. We've been raised with Christ next Next week, we read a section that talks about raised to new living. Through the resurrection, we we live a sanctified life. We live differently. It's It's amazing how God threads it all together. It's not me. Number four, unbelief, verse 24. I mean, this is obvious. Jesus says to them, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Here, Jesus gives the clearest warning in this entire passage. If the religious leaders continued in their unbelief and rejection of Jesus as their Christ, as their Messiah, they would die in their sins. Now, we've already covered what happens when a person dies in their sins, right? They experience eternal death and separation from God's common grace, mercy, and light. Of the five warning signs in this section unbelief is the clearest evidence that a person is on the path to eternal death. Of the five, this is the one that just there's no doubt about it. I say this because it is possible for a genuine believer to exhibit things periodically like self-righteousness. It's sad, but it's totally true for us that those who are in Christ can begin to get prideful maybe because of the knowledge of the word or other things. Next thing you know, we're Kind of being self-righteous and acting more like a Pharisee than Jesus. It can happen. Genuine believers can ex- exhibit self-righteousness. Guess what? Genuine believers can exhibit darkness and worldliness. Can't you? I certainly can. I mean, sometimes things come out of my mouth and I'm like, Oh, come back. Sometimes thoughts enter my brain. Oh, get out of there. Nasty. It is totally possible for genuine believers to exhibit these things. These are things that we, as genuine believers, have to deal with. Things that we have to fight against every day. There isn't a day that doesn't go by where you're not trying to capture your thoughts, where you're not trying to harness that little two-ounce beast, which can set huge fires, your tongue. There isn't a day that doesn't go by where you're not dealing with those things. But unbelief. In the person and work of Jesus Christ, flat out rejection of Him is not something that a genuine believer will ever exhibit. Never. Now, I'm not talking about doubt. I'm not talking about, you know, experiencing doubts at times. Every genuine believer will experience doubt in their life. I'd be lying if I told you, oh, you'll just never have any issues with that. I wouldn't be realistic. And usually we don't have a whole lot of doubts when everything's going smooth. But then when you get a cancer diagnosis, doubt. You lose your job, doubt. You get handed a sixty-day notice, you have to move, doubt. I doubt God's going to provide. I doubt God loves me. I doubt, 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 doubt. Doubt Abbey. You ever experienced doubt? If, you're not, if you've never experienced it, then, then you're probably actually plagued by the first one, self-righteousness. Every believer experiences doubt, and, and most of the time, doubt is caused by sin. And, and doubt usually has to do with not doubting your salvation, but doubting in God's love for you, acceptance of you, mercy for you, provision for you, plan for you, whatever, right? It usually has to do with provision and those things, because provision goes away, and then you start to wonder, is he going to take care of our needs? Is he going to get us a place? What's going on? That's where the doubt comes in, but it's all tied to sin, usually. Sin just twists us up, and it, it, it removes our clear ability to discern the promises of God you get a bunch of sin in your life, you're, yeah, you're going to wonder if He loves you. You're going to wonder if He has forgiven you. You've got to wonder if He cares about you. you you're going to wonder if He's accepted you, but it's your sin that's causing it, not Him. Nothing changes with Him. Unbelief has to do with not trusting in Christ. Unbelief, unbelief here in this context has to do with not trusting in Christ as Lord and Savior. This is just flat-out rejection of Him. And a genuine believer will not experience that, cannot turn away from Christ in this way. A genuine believer cannot forfeit their salvation, even though we try at times. I don't want this. Actually, we do want the salvation the whole time. We just don't want God's will for our life at that moment. We don't want the trial, whatever it is. And you know what else? Not only will a genuine believer never forfeit their salvation, no matter what they go through, no matter how tough things get, it'll never be taken from them. Why? Because salvation, eternal life, is the work of the sovereign God. And no one and no thing can separate us from His love. Romans 8.38-39. through 39. If we do not believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, we are on the path to eternal death. We must repent and put our trust in Christ alone for our salvation before it's too late, before we die in our sins. As Mike said earlier, today is the day of salvation. Repent and trust Him now. Number five, willful ignorance. Verse 25 So they said to him, this is the religious leaders speaking to Jesus, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. Now the religious leaders had listened to Jesus' sermons and declarations and proclamations about who he is and why he came for two and a half years. His ministry has been going on for two and a half years at this point in the narrative. They were there to hear all the sermons and every proclamation. And now all of a sudden they're asking, who are you? No, they knew who he was, but they refused to believe in him. This is a classic case of willful ignorance where people pretend not to know what is obvious. See a lot of that in our day and age, don't you? Years ago, when I worked in Car Audio, (laughs) it's funny, uh, it was in a shop right up the street here. I mean, all the times I worked in stereo was always on Dang McHenry, but it was right up by Five Points up here. And I worked in this little shop, and it was the very first shop I ever worked in. I was not working with Carla's brother at the time. This was pre Carl. And uh, I I was working in this shop, and and, I didn't even think I was getting paid. I just kept showing up at this place, and, and then all of a sudden I was helping everyone, and I wasn't getting paid. I'm now putting that together. <laughs> That's not right. <laughs> Stupid. This guy comes into the shop, and, and he's just looking around browsing, tall guy, and he's browsing and all that, and kind of watching him. You know, in car stereo, you got to watch people. They'll try to steal stuff. Not everyone. I mean, you don't want to be, like, stereotypical, right? Like, just following people around you know, so I was just kind of like watching him and all that, and then I noticed the counter that he was standing in front of was slid open, and there was a radio that was on the glass shelf that wasn't there anymore, so, and then he was acting very sheepish, and then I walked around him and looked at him, and he had stuffed it down the front of his pants, but all the wires were hanging out, (laughs) it looked like a fountain of wires coming out of the front of his pants. And so I said, sir, you're trying to steal that radio. Give it to me at once. And he goes, what radio? (laughs) The radio that's sticking out of the front of your pants. Give me the radio. Oh, this radio? I don't even know how it got there. You opened the counter, pulled it out of the counter, and slid it down to the front of your pants, and you weren't smart enough to put it a little lower where I couldn't see the wires. So give it to me. And he's sitting there literally looking me in the face saying, I have no idea how that got here. It must have slid off the counter, fell down my pants. This is what he's telling me. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So I just take it and jerk it out of his pants. And say, get out of here, for I call the police. He turned and walked out. Classic case of willful ignorance, not owning what he had done, denying that it had ever happened, although the evidence was clear, and I certainly did not want to grab the radio or even put it back in the counter after where it had been. I should have made him pay for it. You own that thing now, $89.99. Classic case of willful ignorance. You, You know what we call that? Playing dumb. You remember that phrase? Oh, he was playing dumb. He he was just playing dumb. And that's precisely what they're doing here. They know precisely who Jesus is. They don't believe that he's Messiah or Savior, but they know who he is. They know where he's from, and they know his message, and they know what he's been saying about himself. And all of a sudden, they say, who are you? Like they just met him for the first time. No. And people do this all the time with Jesus. They know who He is, they know why He came, but they act like they don't. Those who do this, those who are willfully ignorant, play dumb with Jesus, are on the path to eternal death. And here's the deal, if I'm describing you, if this is you, if you've just been pretending that He never came or that he didn't, he was just a good person and not a messiah. If you've just been playing that whole game and denying uh, who he is and all of that, if you've been playing that willful, ignorant, playing dumb game, here's, here's my advice to you. Stop playing games. Stop pretending that Jesus doesn't exist or didn't come to do what he did, didn't come to save us. Stop the game. Stop playing willfully ignorant. Repent of this nonsense and trust in Him alone by grace through faith. No one will be able to plead ignorance before the throne of God on Judgment Day. No one. You won't be able to say, I, just, I never heard about Him. I, I, don't, I, don't, I didn't know anything about Him. You'll, you won't be able to plead that. God has made Himself known to all men, and all men are therefore without excuse. Romans 1.20. can't be willfully ignorant at Judgment. Repent and believe in Jesus right now. Now let's look at our last section. This part goes pretty quick. A terrifying realization, 26 through 30. Jesus continues, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him, that... And then it says in 27, and speaking of the Pharisees' religious leaders, they did not understand that Jesus had been speaking to them about the Father, you know, the Father who sent Him. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. And then verse 30 is awesome. As he was saying these things, many believed in him, but it's not that awesome because we'll get to that. So the religious leaders were angry with Jesus here. Why? Because of his indictments against them. They were the most religious people in that region and, and maybe the most religious people in the entire world at the time. And Jesus tells them that they could not go to where he was going, heaven, that they were from below, that they were of the world, and that they would die in their sins for refusing to believe in him. I'd say they're ticked. They're upset. They're angry with him. And then in verse 26, Jesus is like Billy Mays, but wait, there's more. Literally, this is what Jesus does. He's like an infomercial. But wait, there's more. He tells them that he could say much more about them and render more judgments against them. Oh, what I've told you isn't you in your entirety. I know everything about you all of your sins, and I have much to say and judge about you. But guess what? This isn't the time for it. Apparently, their list of sins was pretty long, but Jesus didn't have time to get into it. He tells them, He who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from Him. In other words, my Father's indictments against you, or my indictments against you, are the Father's indictments against you. I'm just simply telling you what the Father has told me about you. So deal with it. And of course they misunderstood him as usual. The religious leaders and others present would one day, would one day awaken to a terrifying realization. And Jesus discloses it in 28, that they rejected Crucified and killed the one whom they should have worshipped, Jesus Himself. That's the terrifying realization. The one that we rejected, the one that we blasphemed, the one that we killed is the one whom the Father sent that we were supposed to worship. Oops! For some, the realization came too late after death. They died in their sin and went off to eternal death. How tragic. For others, it came on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2.37 tells us that 3,000 Jews were cut to the heart when they realized what they had done to their own Messiah, as Peter preached. Jesus also tells them that the Father is always with Him and that the Father is pleased with what He is doing In other words, the Father approves of His indictments against them. (laughs) Jesus' indictments of them, the evidences that He gave for their behavior and their position, were the Father's positions or opinion against them. Lastly, as Jesus was saying these things, many believed in Him. The following verses seem to indicate, though, that these believers were not true believers. J.C. Ryle said, there is nothing to show that they had true faith. They appear to have acted under the influence of temporary excitement without considering what they were doing. And as you read along, you'll, Jesus ends up calling, says to them that their father is the devil and these things. I mean, that's, that's not the way you speak to a genuine believer, is it? Read the text yourself. We'll get to it. So I don't think they were truly converted. I think something happened, but it wasn't the real deal. And that's frightening to me, that you can proclaim the gospel and people will respond in some capacity and not actually know the Lord at all. Uh, how many people have made a profession of faith and, and, and didn't stick that out? How many people have been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but were never A true believer. It happens. It happens. And I want to close with this. I just want to ask you, what or which path are you on? Are you on the path that leads to eternal life? Have you repented of your sin and put your trust in Christ alone for your salvation? Do you have the Holy Spirit? And you can tell, He convicts you of your sin, He gives you joy, He instructs you day to day on how to live your life, He witnesses through you, He fills you with the power to obey the Word. You can tell if you have the Holy Spirit. It's not a feeling though, it's a reality that is affirmed through your own actions and love and devotion to God. If it's all about a feeling, then there's some days you're going to feel like you have the Spirit, and most days you don't. It's not a feeling. It's a reality. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Do you love the light and walk in the light? One of the ways that we walk in the light is by loving each other. Is your life characterized by faith, the presence of the Holy Spirit, devotion to God? If it is, you're on the path to eternal life. Hallelujah. Or are you on the path that leads to eternal death? If your life is characterized by self-righteousness, darkness, worldliness, you could be. If you're not fighting against these things and constantly turning from them like day to day, it could be that you've never been born again and do not have the Holy Spirit. The defining mark is warfare against sin. That's one of the ways that you know you have the Holy Spirit. If you're battling against sin, if you're battling against your own sin, not everyone else's, yours. Some people spend tremendous amount of energy fighting everyone else's sin for them. but They are blind to their own, which proves that they do not have the Spirit. The Spirit will convict you long before it convicts somebody else through you. Most of the time when you go to somebody else, you'll realize because of the grace of the Spirit that you can't call them out on that because you're doing it ten times more. If you're not fighting against these things and constantly turning from them, it could be that you've never been born again or have the Spirit. It could be that you're on the path to eternal death. If your life is characterized by unbelief and willful ignorance, you are definitely on the path to eternal death. No doubt about it. If you do not believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, if you have not submitted to His Lordship, give it Him yourself. No doubt. You're on the path to eternal death. What are you to do? Repent. Turn away from the darkness. Turn away from sin. Turn away from the world which is perishing. And turn to Christ. That's not all you're to do. Believe. Trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Believe the gospel that Jesus lived for you, that Jesus died for you, that Jesus was buried for you, that Jesus rose from the dead three days later for you. Believe in the totality of who he is and in the totality of his work for you. Believe that your righteousness comes from Him. Believe that your cleansing and forgiveness comes from Him. Put everything, all of your stock in Jesus and in no one else. Do it now. The Bible says if you do this, you shall be saved. You shall be saved. Acts 16, 31. You shall be saved say.